Welcome to Conscious Curiosity San Diego, the podcast that provides the backstory of local successful San Diego leaders who bring hope, inspiration, and purpose to the work they do and the people they lead. Conscious Curiosity is sponsored by Conscious Capitalism San Diego, and I'm your host, Jeff Lanton from Jailbreak Leadership. Conscious Capitalism calls for a different type of leadership, a leader that seeks a higher purpose for business beyond profit that positively impacts all the stakeholders, employees, vendors, and the community they work in. We will explore why they have come to lead in this way, the rewards and challenges of being a conscious leader, and their vision for the future for their businesses and the community of San Diego. Have you ever tasted pure, unadulterated honey? Yes, honey. Odds are you have not, given that honey is one of the most fraudulent foods in the world. Today, here in the Better Business Bureau studio, we have the pleasure of talking to the man who's on a mission to change that, Douglas Raggio. Welcome to Conscious Curiosity SD. Thank you. I was first introduced to Douglas in between the COVID shutdowns at a tie event here in San Diego. And I remember going home all excited to tell my wife all about bees and honey and this really interesting guy who's out to change the world. And here he is in the studio with us. Doug is the founder of Pass the Honey, who's taking on the bee industry. Doug is a reformed venture capitalist who now focuses on finding value-creative alignment between founders, investors, and shareholders. As you'll quickly find out, Doug is not a really fun guy to be with, and he is a true conscious leader that's out to change the world. Doug, this is going to be fun. Looking forward to it. I forgot about that tie event. Yeah, that's where we first met. Yeah, and here you are. <laughs> so let's get started with who are you? I mean, you got this great story. We were chatting over the phone back a couple of weeks ago, and uh, how did how did you get here? Give us the give us the, the short uh, version of uh, the story of uh, Doug, and here here you are. Started out of college, PR marketing, big firms, working with Nike, Motorola, Directv. Um, they were all doing really really good at the time, and so I was able to kind of be part of some big programs, Super Bowls. 500s. Uh, fun stuff. Yeah, it was really, I mean, as a young guy, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, big accounts, big, big expense budgets. Um, so yeah, I went through there, worked in some power sports, worked with a couple motorcycle designers and learned consumer goods and supply chain and manufacturing. And then I had a falling out with one of my business partners and kind of had an existential crisis at 29. Um, essentially homeless traveling around crashing on couches. Landed in San Diego visiting a friend and started making stews, gumbos, and jambalayas because I love them and couldn't get anything other than Dinty Moore at the grocery store at the time and thought there should be a single-serve fresh pint of jambalayas. I know, by the way, the reason I got like, here was because I promised to take them to Bud's for lunch <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> and, jambalaya. <laughs> and I'm very excited. Um, yeah, and so I started a food company called Stews and Such and no experience, no money, um, called 60 founders of food companies and went on the farmer's market list actually in San Diego, the Lucadia farmer's market and was asking founders, you know, how'd you start your company? You know, how'd you find capital? And every one of them had a problem. Like this was 14, 15 years ago. And when you start hearing that many brands you think are successful or having, you know, capital raising problems, you start to wonder, Oh, is there a gap? And that's really where I made the decision to kind of put the stew on the back burner, as I say. And work in finance and looked for a venture capital fund in food and beverage, and there was none. Um, there was nothing fully dedicated to kind of healthier, better for you food brands. And 
met Christian Solomon at Pillsbury Law here in town at a random event, a tech event of all things, and we hit it off, and he's a partner that works in venture-backed companies here in town. And through him and his network and my network, we were able to scrounge together some funds and create Gastronome Ventures, which was what I believe to be the first fully dedicated food and beverage fund in the United States. Um, Told by a lot of people, you can't make money in food, which I found ironic given that two-thirds of the Forbes list is food-related making it, moving it, selling it. And we're all eating. Yeah. So I don't know why that you couldn't get your returns in food, but that just was the thinking at the time. No and big it, margins. So we're looking for the big, what, 10X or whatever, right? Maybe that's what the Well, yeah, is. that's that would be the philosophy. Yeah. And that's where, you know, it's interesting watching the you can't do it to then having, there's now 5,000 funds Oh, really? Really? And when you watch the, the you know, on any sort of transaction and exit, there's a buyer and a seller. And now we have you know five thousand venture funds, and about fifty thousand venture backed companies, but the same roughly two dozen buyers. Like the buy side never grew, so now where do they go? Which is where you see the kind of standard venture, you know, one in ten wins. Um, but then the economics, it is an exponential growth. It, there's inputs and there's cost of goods and there's transport and logistics, and I think we're all. <laughs> As of COVID, and we're all familiar with supply chain. We've learned about yeah, that. Yeah, we've yeah. learned about well, supply chain. We're all supply chain experts now. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, that was, you know, I've gotten to venture capital, didn't like it, and to the conscious capitalism component, did it feel right? A win for me was selling a company to a large conglomerate, like further consolidating our food system. I think we're in kind of the problem we're in now because 11 or 12 companies control most of our food and they're publicly traded for the most part. And they have to have quarterly earnings. I get it. But like, I didn't feel like I didn't want to participate in that any longer. So after I think three or four years of running the fund, called a micro fund, I guess, um, got out and dissolved the fund, passed the shares to the LPs and took the pressure off the founders and said, run your company the way you want to run it. Let's not try to, you know, you know, pump and dump or flip it for the exit. And, uh, You'll have a longer term view. Well, yeah, we have food system problems. So that's when I started Bias and Blind Spots, which is more of a private equity style. Um, Purchased a food, uh, superfoods company, kind of importer, co-packer. Thought that was going to be my Berkshire Hathaway. You know, kind of centralize our buying and then invest in other food brands. Had a really crappy limited partner get in the mix and just caused a nightmare for everyone involved and had one of those realizations. If this guy has his way, then he's not in San Diego, by the way. Um, of course he, not. Yeah, I'm sure there's types <laughs> like him, though. Um, yeah, if he had his way, I'd be broke, and I have no relationships, and he'd have every chip on the table. And so I just, we dissolved that entity pretty quickly, kind of sold it in parts, which didn't feel good. We made a return. Um, but yeah, when you took a company to kind of create legacy and permanence, and then you have to dismantle it and sell it in, a, you know, in parts, didn't feel right. So yeah, at that point, you know, you're, I'm a fund manager without a fund, and without an asset and didn't like being a middleman. And that's when I started making you know, lemon, honey, lemon, ginger teas for, I was getting sick cause this investor was kind of was running me through my paces and realized that honey was incredibly fraudulent. And there was a way, you know, if you go up supply chain that liquid honey comes from honeycomb and honeycomb can't be adulterated. And most 70% of all liquid honeys has been blended with syrups and sugars, processed syrups and sugars. So it's cut like drugs. And you mentioned in your in your intro that you know, most consumers, there's a, if seventy percent of all liquid honey is fraudulent, there's a real case that no, con, you know, most American consumers have never tasted real honey. 
Right. The numbers aren't in your So we favor. don't know. We don't even know, right? I mean, until you said that at the time, man, I... Yeah, I mean, I don't, honey, honey. Right? Here's another. You start to dig into honey, and it's a shocking industry. I mean, I'll just rattle off. Seventy percent. It's the third most fraudulent food on the planet. Olive oil and milk are number one and two. Milk is typically blended with other whitening agents overseas, um, and olive oil is blended with other oils. Um, and that's most oils. Avocado oil is highly fraudulent too. Um, so liquid honey is the third most fraudulent food on the planet. A lot of consumers buy manuka honey because it's high dollar stuff. It's probably about 80 to 90% fraud in Manuka because it's the high ticket, right? Like, if you're not going to fake something, you're not going to fake a cheap knockoff. You're going to fake the expensive stuff. Um, I mean, so much fraud is in Manuka that Trader Joe's sold more Manuka than it's exported annually. That's mm-hmm. just one retailer. So, where's Costco getting their supply? So, like, the numbers, again, don't, like, they don't match. Um, there's RICO charges, Racketeering Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, how they brought down the mob in New York. There's RICO charges right now in Northern California against the top six honey producers and True Source Honey that was was qualifying fraudulent honey. And they were pushing out, you know, pushing out true producers with uh, lowered prices, adulterated honey. Um, it's the fifth way to launder money globally. Um, <laughs> this is there a good is story. a thing called Honeygate that happened, I think, about eight years ago. Um, a broker was taking honey and rerouting it around the world and uh, I think changing its source of origin. Um, and it was all adulterated as well. So there's a reason why when you, you know, liquid honey spikes blood sugar, it's because it's not the honey. It's actually the processed sugars that have been cut into it. Um, yeah. And that seems like a big problem. You know, if we can you know, address that and liquid honey is different than honeycomb, and honeycomb can't be heated and can't be blended, which are two of the more fraudulent practices. And then you look at honeycomb traditionally sold in a 14-ounce brick, which is a total pain in the neck. Uh, Messy, sticky, can't leave it on the counter because it attracts ants, can't put it in the fridge because it just becomes unedible. So then my, you know, the innovation was when we make it conveniently formatted, kind of like Justin's nut butter put his jar into little sachets for single serve on the go. So you really can't change the honeycomb. The honeycomb is the honeycomb, yeah. and that's kind of the goal. Let's yeah. let's get the real product. Yeah, and then the innovation was just as simple as like, how do I package this thing in a way that people can consume it and yeah. do when something you with it? it. Can, when you make it convenient, a whole new audience is introduced to it. So we're just now, I think, we're introducing what honeycomb is to the general consumer. I mean, we get <laughs> this goes back to how we don't know about our food system. More often than we should, we are asked, "How did you get the honey in there?" I don't quite know how to answer that question without sounding like a total smartass. <laughs> we got bees. Yeah, like, how did you make this? Uh, a bee, pollinated flowers. We just cut it and gave it to you. Um, yeah, it's pretty fascinating, the, the, the lack of education around the source of our, our food and then just honeycomb in general has not been consumed in the United States. I don't think ever, really. So kind of kind of interesting. I like to circle all the way back to like. Um, so you say right, like you're having some health issues. You were actually looking for some some treatment to that. And I mean, how how did you get from I'm, I'm drinking a lemon honey drink to now I I'm, I got this whole business model over here. I mean, what? Well, remember, I owned a superfoods company, right? So I was familiar okay. with import and commodities and superfoods, and I knew about obviously food adulteration just from my background in VC. So you were in but tune with this kind of going there's in. There's a there's a Netflix series called series called Rotten. And they have an episode on honey. So that was kind of my first knowledge of honey. And they also have one on maple syrup, and they have some other ones. But uh, that was where I, I, I first had the knowledge. And then working in the import business, I just was aware of Honeygate when it happened because it was just news. Um, 
Yeah, when you're looking at something, you're thinking, wow, I don't want to use this. Like honey is incredibly nutrition, nutrient dense when it's pollen and when it's sourced from real pollen, when flowers are used and bees. Um, so yeah, as I was making these honey lemon ginger teas, I knew I wasn't getting real honey and I was you know, lacking nutritional density. So you were looking for a better product. Yeah, I just wanted, I wanted the full effects of real honey. Okay, and okay. You, and you can find it. It was, well, I'll just get honeycomb and you buy honeycomb and you're like, wow, this is a total pain. Um, and then when you have a pain point, there's opportunity. Right, right. Um, so it, it, it was no stroke of genius. It was just, quite frankly, it was kind of laziness. It's like, I want good stuff, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put bad food in my system. I'm not a health nut. I just knew it was incredibly fraudulent. And why would I put something incredibly fraudulent in my system? Um, so you just go where it came from. And it comes from honeycomb. And oh, well, blending and heating are the two most fraudulent practices. You can't do that to honeycomb. It would destroy the comb. So it kind of is this visual proof point that it's, it's amazing to me. And this is a tangent. In our current food system, there's very little things that haven't been touched by a man or machine. Right, I'm sure, yeah. Literally, a bee pollinated flowers, created honey, put it in the cell. Now, yes, we use a machine to cut it, but that honey in that cell that's going into your mouth has been untouched by anything. It doesn't get any closer to the earth than that. I can't think of anything. It hasn't been mixed. It hasn't been heated. It hasn't nothing. Right. It's little. A bee put it in there and has no one's touched it since. I mean, they found honey in King Tut's tomb. That's edible. Like it doesn't expire. It's a it's a beautiful product. And the fact that when you start getting into this goes into kind of the purpose of the company is, I thought it'd be easy to source honeycomb in the U.S. Well, we can't get clean honeycomb in the U.S. because of such prolific pesticide use. Oh, okay. Bees. Back to more things that people don't know about bees. Bees are classified as livestock. There is no organic certification for honey by the USDA because organic certification is based on crop practices. Bees aren't a crop. They fly. They're an insect, um, and they're classified as livestock. So while there's no certification for honey and no standards for organic honey in the U.S., there's also zero enforcement, so now you see it on bottles. Um, But to get to the honeycomb, because most commercial beekeepers truck their bees around to monocrops to pollinate monocrops, it exposes the bees to every pesticide used in the U.S. And there's a bioaccumulation in the wax. So what I thought would be simple, which is just go to Honeycomb, buy Honeycomb at scale in the U.S., I can't find a producer to actually sell me the Honeycomb because they know it's riddled with pesticides. And when that, that unfortunate situation happened, it kicked off a global supply study with a regenerative organization to see where we could source clean Honeycomb at scale. And that took about two years, I think, about a year and a half, two years, to identify regions and where food supply practices are done, where has banned different pesticides. Um, Industrialized nations that don't have an industrialized food source, like the monocrop system is bad for bees. Um, So the locations that exist in the world today are really kind of based on the fact that they're kind of off the grid almost. Not off the grid, just different different food systems. Okay. We're an industrialized food system here in the U.S. Like monocrops is how we produce as much food as we do. And that isn't the case elsewhere. And that's just a big machine and it's all about efficiency. And, yeah. yeah. UK, Asia, they're just different food, food systems. Um, so with that as like our background of how do, where do we find the cleanest honeycomb, we actually in the same process had to, because honeycomb is currently an other category of honey and there's no real testing standards because it's never been done. Um, I don't think anybody's ever cared. 
So we ended up setting regenerative standards and practices with this third party called TerraGenesis. And we set regenerative standards and practices. We partnered with UC Davis, the Robert Mondavi Center for, the Robert Mondavi Institute Center for Honey and Pollination. It's a very long name. Um, but working with them to identify what we consider regenerative practices in beekeeping. So we now have a regenerative apiculture working group. We have also released the regenerative apiculture white paper in partnership with UC Davis. Uh, we have also secured 1.1 million acres of forest land in the U.S. with partners, large landowners, to have a completely removed beekeeping op operation. So it's not participating in the, the monocrop system and the pollination and the pesticide use. To understand the effects of managed hives on native species, what those two do together, where they compete, where they don't compete, what the two of those groups do from a ecological diversity, and then from the ecological diversity, how much carbon we can sequester. You've so, created quite the science project here, Douglas. It is. It's been a four-year a four-year journey to go really deep into the supply chain to reclaim honey. But it's sad that we had to go to those links, and we only went to those links because honey is so fraudulent. I shouldn't have to do all this work. So what? So you mentioned the you know the purpose. So what? what I mean, you get into this. What, you know, kind of back to the conscious capitalism. I mean, what, what's the higher purpose, and, and what's like what's the vision? Like, how, how, what's I mean, titles two kind of together. The soundbite is we're we're set out to reclaim honey, you know. But the underlying is to evolve ecological diversity and ap apiculture practices beyond what's perceived possible, to actually have a truly regenerative product. And it's interesting in our in our unique product is that. We want the best honeycomb, and that comes from the best habitats. So the cleaner and the more ecologically diverse the habitat is, the more native the landscape is, the better our comb becomes. So you don't get that with cows. You don't get that with crops. There's, there's actually, we, our footprint is about a two-by-two-foot square box, right? That's a beehive, number of them, but it has a six-mile positive radius of ecological diversity and pollination. Mm. So where else do you get this super small footprint that has this net benefit that sequesters carbon, which is you know kind of the, the the thesis of regenerative agriculture is not just sustaining things, but leaving it net positive after sourcing. Wow! So bees and then what they do and how they create honey is actually a net positive. We just happen to benefit from the output of those labors. Um, Sorry. So you as a business, I mean, are you? I mean, are you the one that's putting the whole light on this? this as you've starting to learn about a needing and then seeing how this is fit into, you know, the, the whole food industry and global warming. <laughs> really, I mean, all these things are kind of coming together here to say, wow, bees have a role to play in this thing. And I just happen to be in the bee business. So, I mean, is, has that been kind of a charter of the business is just to try and put a light on this and continue to evolve the process in a way that people understand it and why we need it? And It has been a much larger lift than I ever the method, to, that original plan. Yes. <laughs> the ginger little honey. Yeah, I really thought, <laughs> it'd honey. Be, I thought it'd be really easy. Um, so much for that idea. <laughs> <laughs> the education we have to do, not just with the consumer, uh, the education we have to do with retail buyers. We sell into you know, a grocery store, they don't know where to put it. Does it go in honey? Does it go in deli? Because of charcuterie, does it go in produce because of the agricultural commitment? Um, does it go in the checkout? Does it go in the wellness aisle? Because it's straight glucose. It's. I still have investors in the company. We raised a little bit of money with friends and family and people that had some longer-term vision. I have no intentions of ever selling it. The vision is to have a 
unadulterated portion of the liquid honey market. Uh, that reclaiming honey is true, and that could be in consumer applications. It could be in industrial commercial formulations for large CPGs that want to have regenerative honey in their products. So I look at this thing as, you know, it's a commodities play. I thought it was a consumer packaged goods for a long time, but liquid honey is a processed food. Honeycomb is a commodity. It's, un, it's just cut and packaged, mm. just like a cut carrot or a bag or a clamshell of berries. Mm. So when I start looking at things as we're a commodity, we get a lot of marketing groups that ask, who's your core demographic? Well, who's the core demographic of a banana? Well, how do you use your product? How do you use a banana? The more you go back to the history of the banana in this in this world, in this in the United States for going back a hundred years, it's pretty similar to what we're doing now. So, so you almost have to kind of look at other commodity yeah. food products that like what do I match up with and how do I look at those and Absolutely. think about this. Yeah. We are we are a commodities business and we are going deeper in the supply chain because it just happens to be a highly fraudulent commodity. It's that, and that part takes education, even with our landowner partners. What's their interest in letting us put hives on their, on their timber land? Well, if we can sequester carbon, there may be a carbon credit you can sell. Mm. Um, you can get So you have to get trades. very creative to move this forward, right? I mean, you I always got to look at lots of different angles. Maybe. I don't think my brain works that well to be creative. I think it's just common sense. You know, if, if we have more bees on your land, will you get stronger trees? Will you have quicker reforestation after a forest fire? That's what bees do. You know, it just seems like dumb, stupid, simple science, but behind it's that, almost like look at a problem and go, huh, uh, it's a bee. It's a bee. I got a solution to this. Our right? landowner partners in the Pac West, they lost a hundred thousand acres in the the bootleg fire, and so we were up there scouting locations for the hives, and that's probably one of the most surreal experiences I've been in. That fire burns so hot that there's no living, there's nothing living in that. There's no. It is a carbon. It's like just charcoal. And to be in a forest for almost as far as the eye can see where there's not a rustling bush, there's not a squirrel, there's not a bird, it is eerie. Kind of like Mount St. Helens from that thing. It's like creepy. Bird. And then on the other side of the road, the fire break is a living forest. Mm. So the thinking is, is that what if we put beehives along the fire you know, line and can we pull organic matter through from the living side to the to the fire ravage side and reforest and what pioneer species could be what's the first thing to grow so our we do a, a hard backstop this nuclear magnetic resonance testing on our honeycomb to validate that our suppliers are adhering to our regenerative standards and practices it's an mri for food it's the highest level of testing you can do um, and you can't beat the system at this point or at least people haven't the fraudsters haven't figured out how yet so we we go to that length and it also, we match our pollen against the DNA library to validate it's from the regions we're being told it's from. Well, that pollen matching program can also be used to identify what the first, they call pioneer species, are in a fire-ravaged area. So that's just something you think when you're driving, like, can we use bees to just reforest? Right. And you have a whole new filter now. Everything in the world, it's weird. Like, it looks through the, eye, the eyes of a bee, right? What do bees do? Bees <laughs> yeah. pollinate. Bees yeah. create ecosystems. Yeah. You know, you need ecosystem here. And so now the landowner partner has a way to reforest and hopefully, you know, regenerate their asset, which in their case is timber, quicker. You know, they harvest every forty years. Maybe with stronger trees, they can harvest every thirty-five. We don't know. That's a big economic impact for them. So yeah, it's, it's gotten this, when you talk about education, it has got every little vein, and which is part of the reason why I never intend to sell it, is it's, this fires all my curiosity. You know, to partner with MIT, NASA, and Google, and UC Davis, 
on the largest pollinator habitat and restoration effort in, a, in the world that we're aware of. You know, a million acres already, we're shooting for seven. Um, that's cool. And then to sell a product that the consumer doesn't know about, that's a problem. Like, how do you educate? How do you use honey? So you have to educate that part. And, but when it works, it works. So you're having a good time. Not easy, but having a good time. Cash flow is a bear, but you know, <laughs> as always, the faster you grow, the more cash you consume. But uh, yeah, it, it works. It works, and it is fascinating. And it is a you talk about impact businesses. It's very hand in hand. Our best product comes from the best ecosystems. So, what's been the biggest surprising barrier? Right. I mean, you've been in VC, you've done in private equity. I mean, so you kind of get all those kind of classic challenges you have, and now you're on this really interesting adventure with this. And you probably even going into you, I can probably imagine what some of the issues would be. But what's been the biggest surprise? Like, I would never in my wildest imagination thought that would have been a problem. And you only get one. <laughs> okay. Okay. So my my current. Conund- not even conundrum, just it, it boggles my mind a bit. We are selling so fast in our first retailers that people don't believe the numbers. So for example, your average retailer, there is a very high-end natural grocery store in San Diego that is known for having you know specialty goods. We will not name names. They do about $37 per store per week in honeycomb sales, which is high, actually. Your average grocery store only does about $800 in honeycomb sales annually. Oh, really? So honeycomb does not move. It is this like dead, dusty part of the store. So if you look at, you know, this higher-end retailer doing $37 a week, our first couple accounts did $2,000 a week. So to their two and a half units, we did 179 units per week, per store. People think, oh, well, that, that's a different store. Like, well, even at a fraction of that, you're still making a lot more. And so that's shocking is when I tell, when I, the thesis originally was put it into a convenient format and you'll see consumption increase. Nutella is a very good example. Nutella was a dusty jar on the bottom shelf for the longest time. They started putting those single serve grab and goes and all of a sudden it's at kids' lunches, it's in convenience stores, it's a whole new generation of people are exposed just because of the convenient form factor. Justin's nut butter, same thing, was in a jar, put in little scrab and goes, and all of a sudden he had twice as much shelf space and he's moving a lot of units. Um, convenience form factor wins. So to tell somebody that, them not believe it, and then to show them the numbers and them still not believe it. <laughs> what, do we, what do I gotta do here? Yeah, that's been the part that's like, well, what else do I need to do? How do you see the consumer changing now, right? I mean, people are being starting to become more conscious of this, the, the food supply and the challenges that we got and the diseases it's creating and all these other things that are going on. And so now here you are with a product that's really, you know, got lots and lots of great benefits and it's pure. You've got all these things. Do you just, do you feel like there's a bit of a wave forming and, and kind of back to why, the, why are these sales happening? Yep, we made it convenient, but also maybe the, is the consumer shifting or are we just like now give me the cheapest whatever and I'm I'll go buy it. I mean what, what do you think there? I don't think novelty should be discounted. It is a very beautiful looking item, cute in a accessible format. So people haven't seen honeycomb like this before. So that alone I think sparks a curiosity. And this is part of the reason why I don't ever want to sell liquid honey. I'll say that now, but Currently, I don't intend to ever sell liquid honey 
on shelves under Pass the Honey's brand. Because to say we have to do the things we're doing and say we're a better honey than that other honey that looks just like us in the same jar is a really hard conversation to have with the consumer. Now, honeycomb allows us to change that relationship. We call it snacking honey. So when you, when you create this new category of snacking honey, conveniently portioned, individually portioned honeycomb, you change the customer's relationship to honey. You can talk to different things. So that's part of our educational component. Now, does the customer really care about food fraud? Absolutely. They will tell you that time and time again. But when you tell them that 70% of all liquid honey is fraudulent, it's almost too big of a problem. Like Now what, do I, what am I supposed to do? It's like global warming. Like, yeah. Believe it or not, it, it's not something you see every day, so it's hard to really address it. Like We are a fight or flight species. So you know, we struggle with how to tell the story of what we're doing and the purpose of the company with the benefits of unadulterated honey. You know, it's, it's a balance, and we, don't, we haven't struck it yet which is probably why we're getting the objections from buyers and we're getting you know, people that say, oh, you're too expensive. Well, cheap honey is cheap honey. Uh, you can. You can pay less for honey, but you're not getting honey. So this is actually what true honey, honey costs, and that's just what it is. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it's... So know. let me take it the other way. Yes. So here's the big surprise. You go, <laughs> I didn't think this would be a problem. What thing like turned out to be like, wow, didn't expect that. It was like <laughs> super easy and it just opened some doors and you pretty much you, you, you baited the witness or whatever they call it. Um, because of my background in venture and private equity and consumer goods, I looked at this, this product initially as a consumer goods brand. Features, benefits, packaging, product claims, all that stuff. Going through grocery. We ended up getting signed with a very large produce distributor. And they looked at me like I was an alien when I was talking about nutritional panels. And they go, they told me, they go, you're, you're a commodity. You don't need any of this stuff. Like, you're, a, you're an apple. You're a banana. And that, that, like, every objection we've got from a grocery buyer for the most part is you're not sourced in the U.S., can't get clean honeycomb in the U.S., so all your honeycomb is not coming from here um, for the most part. Uh, they don't like that we are expensive, and they don't like that we're in plastic. Now, however, we are liquid, and we have weight concerns, and we're also in 100% upcycled post-consumer plastic, so we're actually keeping plastic in an ecosystem. So for our product and our product attributes being a liquid, being in glass is not something we can do. It would take extra packaging and lots of weight, so a lot more carbon would be put off from transport. So that's the part that was the objections in grocery. You go to produce, they want it to be foreign, they want it to be expensive, and they're not as sensitive to plastic. Got to talk to the right people, right? So it's the right people. So the it's almost as if all the objections in grocery just disappeared in produce. And it's better terms. It's better business model. I don't have to wait for category reviews over in the grocery set. Um, so for me to shift gears, I was just having a phone call with one of our investors and advisors in the car, was I have to unlearn CPG fast. And I have to learn produce and perishables, even though we don't perish. Um, that has been... That's a paradigm shift for us, and it's unlocked a lot more. This company is not a consumer brand. It is in its current state. It's truly a global commodity play, and it's to reclaim honey. So in that thinking around going through, if it's a pink pineapple, a sumo citrus, wonderful pistachios, these are all very similar business models. They're seasonal. We're at 52-week you know, product, but 
that thinking around supply chain and going deep, it makes a lot more sense as to what we've had to do than it does if you're just like an energy bar maker. So what I'm hearing here, which is kind of interesting, so, you know, the, the platform is bees and honeycomb and all this good stuff. But, if, you know, if you listen to the story, the key is, is this whole flexibility of shifting and turning and, oh, being surprised and going down this, right? I mean, which maybe leads to... I was just going to say. <laughs> uh, when Douglas walked in today, he handed me a book that's about to be published that he wrote. Yeah which I think is along the lines of what we're talking about here, I right? Will, I will plug the title. Plug it, my friend. All right, so it's called So You Want to Start a Food or Beverage Business. <laughs> and the difference with this book is I don't feel like I've gotten anywhere to say how I did something, and I don't think there's a definitive guide to... There's no conclusion, I guess. There's no conclusion. <laughs> it is a, it is a pick-your-path business book. So every couple pages you are forced to make a decision, and you get to choose a path. Now, spoiler alert... Most of the pathways end in failure, just like most businesses end in failure. Either run out of money, product market fit doesn't work, supply chain issues, any number of failure points. But the true, the true thinking is, and I had an investor just this yesterday morning tell me that you, you seem scattered, you don't have focus. And I had to remind him, I'm selling the same thing. All I sell is single serve honeycomb. Where it's sold is almost indifferent. If you're a banquet program at Hilton and you want to put it on cheese boards, great. If you're American Airlines and want to put it in inbound, outbound European flights, great. If you're a spiritual gifts shop and you want to sell it because of the divinity of bees, great. If you're a butcher and you want to sell it for charcuterie, great. You're FTD florist, you want to put it in flower shops because bees and flowers are cute, great. Like, I don't have to. Like, we're, and that goes back to that. We're not a consumer goes with product claims, benefits as like an energy bar. We can be sold in a gym. We can be sold in a grocery set. We can be sold in a deli set. We can be sold in, you know, cafes, wine, cheese shops. There's a whole bunch of charcuterie businesses starting now. Um, but again, it goes back to what are we? We're a commodity. We can be sold. So I, I just want to say to the audience here, I mean, this is, listen to you, right? I mean, so I, I got some passion. I want to go start a business. I want to go do something, right? However it came to me, my, my drink or how, however the idea came, there's a path. It, it's, uh, and it's not like some linear thing where you go from here to here. I mean, it's, it's looking if, and discovering and turning over rocks. And, any North Star that I've had is I wanted legacy and permanence in my business. I did not get that in private equity, and I did not get that in venture. And to do what we're doing now doesn't make sense at the size of the company we are. It does make sense if you take the lens back. And that is what that book's all about. It's about knowing what your outcome that you want is. If you just want to talk to people on Sundays and have some social experiment, go to farmer's markets. If you want to take on craft, I would not recommend starting at a farmer's market. Um, so knowing what your outcome is, you know, for me, we didn't take venture money in past the honey because that has an exit. It has a timeline. It has a five to eight year window that you have to be out. I don't see us changing the food system in five to eight years. Mm. Um, it's kind of my bulk I have with all these you know, meat alternatives right now. Like, Who's going to fund all the losses till Americans stop eating meat? I think we're starting to see that in the share prices as well. But I, but I think the underlying thing here, too, that uh, I hear as we're sitting here talking about this, that there's, there's this, which is back to the kind of conscious capitalism. This isn't just about a play about trying to make some money and pay the right. No. Right. I mean, like you said, I there's want some easier ways to make money. I, I want a legacy. I want, to, I want to do something that's significant in the world. And that just continues to fuel the fire to keep it going, to, to turn over the rocks and, you know, bumping at a few things along yeah, the way, it's, right? It's pulling strings. Like what, what string do I get to pull on and explore today? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Being creative on cash flow, right? Like we we're building all this inventory to support this huge national launch with a number of retailers. 
costs money to build inventory. And until those purchase orders show up, like we're just sitting on inventory, which is the situation we're in today. So you have to like, okay, how do we move some pallets? Where, who wants it? Who does what? And turns out international consumes honeycomb more than the U.S., so we're looking at some international sales because it's just there, and they pay up front. Awesome. <laughs> you got to love um, that. But that, again, goes back to it's a commodity, right? It can be Germans consume more honeycomb than anywhere else we've found. Great. We'll spin up something in Germany, a site in Germany. So as a uh, true conscious leader, a guy out here trying to make a big difference in the world, what's like the big idea? So there was, if there's a, a Douglas sitting out there listening right now and thinking like, okay, yeah, I want to go do something I'm passionate about and go take that on. I think it'll have an impact on the world. What's, what's the big thought? What, what advice would you give him? I was just thinking of this the other morning. and The real meaningful work is boring and takes a long time. People are shocked that we have a million acres. It took four years. And it's not, it's not something that goes on a video. It's boring meetings about GIS data and you know, where we're going to manufacture hives. It's not, there is a, that movie, Don't Look Up or whatever it was, my takeaway was that we're very short-sighted. Let's just call it what it is. That's kind of my was like, we're more worried about some celebrity breakup than we are about an asteroid coming at the Earth. And I see a lot of that in, in our in our business and in the conscious capitalism. Like the big things that need to be addressed don't get a lot of the attention sometimes, and they're they're hard to fund. How do I tell somebody to fund what we're doing that it's going to take twenty five years to really actualize? And so, for founders that are out there, this is the disconnect I see a lot in the food space: is that a lot of food founders idolize the Chobanis, they idolize the Patagonias. Um, and in other categories, they idolize the Spanx founder, they idolize the Poopery founder. But those companies aren't five-year-old companies. You know, the, the real meaningful businesses take 14 years, 18 years, you know, 12, I think, at, at least. So this short-sightedness, and especially if you're trying to lead with some sort of integrity and have some real meaningful impact, it's a lot of boring days and a lot of just chugging along and you know, nicking away at you know an objection or a partnership and just negotiating terms on operating agreements. But so you better know why you're doing it. Yeah. That better be a good reason, right? Yeah. Otherwise, you're just not going to have the staying power. So we're not going to get a close until way later. How about that? Well, we will put a link uh, with the podcast here to the new book that's coming out. Yes. So, um, so you want a book.com, I think, is the website. Okay. All right. it love it. Love it. So people have some guidance on how to do this. And man, I just want to thank you for coming in and, and doing what you're doing, right? Thanks. I mean, this is... Uh, highly educational people makes us stop and think about all our food sources and maybe it's like be better consumers right we, we say that uh, be a conscious consumer is part yes. of the job here everyone has a role to vote play with your wallet this. and vote with your wallet exactly so yeah so i want to thank you for uh taking the time to come in here and uh sharing uh, your wisdom and insights and uh, your passion for this and just you yeah. know being a great guide for other folks that want to go do something big in life and just remember <laughs> Know what that purpose is and realize yeah. it's going to take a little while. So thanks a lot, Douglas, for coming in. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, that's our show for today. And if you enjoyed it, please hit those like buttons and subscribe and share the podcast with a friend. That is the best way to help us to continue to get the word out and help the conscious capitalism movement here in San Diego. Douglas, and to all our listeners, thanks for joining in today. I'm Jeff Blanton saying, until we meet again, go do what you do. Go do what you do best, where we are all counting on you.